pray. Well, thank you, Catherine, for reading that passage to us. And what do we think about what we've just heard? It's a familiar passage, probably. It sounds familiar, perhaps, for most of us. Something that we've read before. Perhaps something that we've heard someone talk about before. Especially if we've grown up coming to church, then... As we saw from the sketch, it's kind of a, a story, a parable that's easily presented, easily act out, acted out. And the parable of the sower is just one of many parables that Jesus told. Perhaps we can think of other examples of Jesus' parables. What, what comes to mind? What are some of the famous parables that Jesus taught? Feel free to shout out. Something comes to mind. Parable of the prodigal son. Yep. Say again. Yeah, exactly. Other other parables. Parable of the talents. Yeah. Good Samaritan. There's loads of them, and there are a lot in this chapter of Matthew that we're looking at. Uh, we're not going to look at all of them today, but we're going to think in more detail about this first one together. Now, Jesus was known for speaking in parables, but he wasn't the only person who used parables. Some of us may remember um, looking at the first few chapters, the first four chapters of the book of Proverbs about six months ago in our series, The Beginning of Wisdom. And the book of Proverbs begins with these words. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, and then a little later on, for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that Jesus has been talking about Solomon, hasn't he? Uh, in verse 34, no, chapter 12, uh, we heard about the Queen of Sheba, or the Queen of the South, who came uh, to visit Solomon. And this is what we read about her visit. So it's verse 42 of chapter 12. She came from the ends of the earth. She came a long way. She came all the way from Ethiopia to see Solomon, to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And Jesus says, now something greater than Solomon is here. So that raises a question, doesn't it? Who or what is Jesus referring to when he says something greater than Solomon is here? It's probably fairly obvious. But at the same time, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't spell it out. He leaves it a little bit as a question for them to think about, and perhaps for us to think about too. And that's typical of Jesus' teaching. When we think of proverbs or parables, they have quite a familiar feel, and they can seem quite simple to understand, but they aren't always that easy to get our heads around. One thing is that they don't they don't translate necessarily from one language into another. And as we know, Jesus wasn't speaking English when he told these parables to the people who were around 2,000 years ago. 
So if we want to understand what Jesus is saying, then it's probably going to require just a little bit of, of work, of concentration, of attention to the details. I've already mentioned this connection between the chapter that we're looking at today and the previous one. But the link is even stronger when we read verse 1 of chapter 13, where it says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. That same day. If you were here the past few Sundays, then you'll know that Jesus has been very busy. He's been dealing with opposition from the Pharisees. He's been healing in the synagogue. He's been teaching about forgiveness. And he's been responding to their request for a sign. And all of this seems to have happened on the same day. All of that was packed into one day. And now it's still that same day. And Jesus has gone out of the house, perhaps have a quiet moment sitting by the lake. But no, there are crowds of people who come to him. So many people that he has to get into a boat so that he can speak to the crowds that are gathered on the shore. So we can imagine the scene, perhaps. And then Matthew tells us that Jesus did what? He's in the boat. The crowds are before him. Matthew tells us that he teaches them many things in parables. And that's important, I think, uh, that Jesus is telling them things in parables, perhaps one parable after another parable after another parable. It's not necessarily exactly as we've got it written in chapter 13. It could be that Jesus told a whole string of parables and then his disciples came to him and started to ask their questions. But the very first parable is about what? What's the first parable about? It's about a farmer, isn't it? A farmer, as we saw. A farmer sowing seed. And then the result that comes from the seed that's sown. And that result depends on, as James helpfully showed us, the kind of soil that the seed was sown into. Where the the seed lands determines what kind of result comes from the seed. And that, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? We can understand the parable at that level. At one level, it's clear and understandable. But perhaps the thing that isn't clear is what does this parable actually mean? So what's Jesus trying to get across through this parable because Jesus finishes with well I don't know how you take it whether it's a bit of a challenge or an instruction in verse 9 whoever has ears let them hear whoever has ears let them hear what does Jesus mean by that what's he saying you might need to try and paraphrase it to understand what Jesus is wanting to get across. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Everyone has ears. Most of the people who were there on the the shore of the lake would have heard the words that Jesus was saying. If he spoke in a loud enough voice, I don't know how many people were there, but they would have heard. Most of the people listening would have heard the words that Jesus said. But there's a difference between hearing the words and understanding the meaning. I think that's what Jesus is trying to get to. By using this phrase, whoever has ears, let them hear, 
Jesus is perhaps saying that the message is literally for everyone, whoever has ears. But he realises that not everyone is going to pay attention because not everyone's going to hear and understand what he's saying. And we'll come back to that a little bit later on. So as David helpfully said, we can divide this chapter or this passage into two parts. There's the bit that everyone got to hear, and then there's the bit that only the disciples heard when they were on, on their own with Jesus. And they asked the question. It's the question that the, the youth group ended on in verse 10. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? Now, we don't know exactly when they asked that question, as I said. Probably after Jesus had finished uh, giving a whole series of parables, rather than interrupting him after the first one. But I wonder if that's the question that I would have wanted to ask Jesus at that moment. Would I have wanted to know, why are you teaching in parables? Wouldn't I have wanted to know, what do these parables mean? It's a good question, but it's not the question I think I would have asked. And perhaps that shows a difference in mindset between, let's say, a Jewish mindset and a non-Jewish mindset or a Greek mindset. I once heard this as an example of the difference between those two ways of seeing things. So imagine sitting on the edge of a swimming pool. Someone comes up behind you and pushes you into the pool. What question would you be asking in that situation? I think if it was me, I'd be thinking, who pushed me into the pool? But actually, a Jewish person would probably be thinking, who's going to help me get out of this pool? So it just reveals that there are two ways of seeing things, two different mindsets. And the question that the disciples asked Jesus is obviously a good question because Jesus then goes to lengths to answer that question. And before we look at what Jesus says, we could ask ourselves, what, what answer would we give to that question? You know, we've heard this parable before. Why do we think Jesus teaches in parables? If you're explaining that to, to one of the younger children or someone from the youth group, why does Jesus teach in parables? It's a good question. It's an important question. Absolutely not. No, no, it's not nice at all. Well, that would be very dangerous, but hopefully, hopefully it won't happen, Jane. We'll stay away from the edge of swimming pools. So part of the answer that Jesus gives is that there are secrets. There's knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom that isn't for everyone. And it can sound a little bit harsh or a little bit unfair when Jesus says, whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. It doesn't, doesn't quite gel with who we think Jesus is. But in the context, remember, it's the Pharisees who Jesus has been contesting with in the previous chapter 
And they've come to their own conclusions about Jesus. They've interpreted Jesus' miracles, and they've rejected Jesus. They've come to the conclusion that Jesus isn't the Messiah. He's not, he's not someone who should be listened to. In fact, they want to kill him. Pharisees had some knowledge, but it hadn't led them to the right conclusions. And, and maybe Jesus is referring to them here when he says, whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Or Jesus might be referring to those he mentioned back in chapter 11, verse 21, where he says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. It's easy to think that if we see miracles, then of course we're going to respond in repentance and faith and belief especially if it's Jesus doing those miracles. But no, that wasn't what happened. Jesus criticizes those places because they saw him perform many miracles and they didn't respond. So maybe those are the ones that Jesus is referring to here. Or Jesus might have been referring even to his own family. Remember, at the end of the last chapter, they'd come to speak with him. And they were waiting outside. And uh, if we look at the, the parallel passage in Mark's gospel, it seems like they've come to kind of quietly take Jesus away because they think he's out of his mind because of what he's doing and saying. So perhaps at this point it might even be members of Jesus' own family. But this question, why... Does Jesus speak to people in parables? Is answered a second time by Jesus in verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will, ne- you will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their eyes, with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. So Jesus is teaching in parables. It seems so that those who really want to hear will have that opportunity. But those who are rejecting Jesus or ignoring Jesus or don't want to know anything about Jesus, he's not going to spell things out for those people. And I guess that that raises a question about us. Where do we sit in all of this? The passage that Jesus quotes here from Isaiah was written hundreds of years before. And the Pharisees would have read this passage, and I'm sure they would have come to the conclusion that it was those people back before the exile who were just ignoring God's laws. They were the ones who weren't hearing, weren't understanding. What Jesus is saying here is it's the Pharisees and people like them who are not hearing and understanding. So we do need to ask the question about ourselves. 
Are we people who hear and understand? Because it seems like Jesus' purpose in telling this parable is to encourage the disciples. What does he say to the disciples in verse 16? He says, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, not hear it. So through all the history of God's people, there were prophets and righteous people who would have loved to hear the things that the disciples were hearing, to to see Jesus face to face, to hear his words, his teaching. And they never did because of God's plan. But in the fulfillment of time, it's the disciples, these ordinary people like, like us, who've responded to Jesus' invitation to follow him. They're the ones who have the secret. They're the ones who've begun to understand who Jesus is. And Jesus calls them blessed, more blessed than the prophets through whom God spoke in the past, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of those prophets. You are more blessed because you're hearing, you're seeing, you're understanding. And for us, unlike the crowds of people who only heard Jesus talk about farming and sowing and seeds that grew... Jesus gives us the opportunity to understand the explanation of the power because we have it here written. If we, if we read and if we engage with what Jesus says, we will understand too. I think we all understand the parable of the sower. If we ask what it's about, perhaps one answer to that question is it's about the things that will stop growth. So growth won't happen if there's no sowing. Growth won't happen if there's no seed. Growth won't happen if the seed lands on, uh, on the path and is eaten by the birds, which Jesus says is seed that is taken away by, um, by the enemy, by Satan. And that's when... There's no understanding when we've heard but we haven't understood. It's like seed that Satan comes and takes away, like it's been eaten by a bird. And that, I'm sure that happens. That happens whether you're a disciple or not, whether you're a follower or not, that happens to us all from time to time. Well, what about the seed falling on rocky ground? What stops the, the root there, the, the growth there, is having no root. And when trouble or persecution comes... People quickly fall away. So we should be alerted to that. Trouble, persecution, that can stop growth, whether we're followers of Jesus or not. And then the seed falling among thorns stops growth because of the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. It chokes the word, making it unfruitful. So it's kind of a, if you like, take the parable as a whole, it's like, well, these are the things that will stop any growth from happening. And in a sense, it's most of the cases that Jesus explains. It's only one situation where this seed that's sown is going to produce a crop. And that is if the seed lands 
in good soil. But what is good soil? How do you know if soil has thorns in it, they're going to choke the seed, or how do you know if the soil's just shallow and there won't be the possibility of root, or how do you know? How do you know? You can't tell. And Jesus doesn't explain here what makes a difference between good soil and any other kind of soil. Perhaps it's only when we see the result that we know whether the soil was good or not. So if there is a lasting crop, not just something that springs up quickly and then disappears, but a lasting result, that's where the seed has landed in good soil. But there's nothing here that Jesus is really telling us to do. He's not saying go and be good soil because he doesn't explain how how to be good soil. He's not even saying, uh, you know, to pray more because that's going to produce more more crop. He's just saying this is how it works. This is how it works. When seed is sown, it will land wherever. And most of the time there won't be any result, lasting results. But if the seed lands in good soil, then there will be a crop. Do the disciples understand what Jesus has said here? At one level, yes. But we know that they're not going to understand really what Jesus is talking about until after his death and resurrection. They're probably not even going to understand fully until after the day of Pentecost when they receive the Holy Spirit. Remember the disciples that went with Jesus on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection and Jesus was explaining things to them. And then they began to realize more fully who Jesus was and what he was about. So this parable talks to us about the difference between the disciples and the Pharisees doesn't explain how things grow. Paul says in one of his letters that he was the one doing the sowing, someone else was watering, but it was God who made things grow. So perhaps what we should take away from this from this parable today, and we're going to look at the other parables in, over the next couple of weeks, is that growth is possible. If the if the sowing has taken place, if the seed is, is landing in good soil, then there will be growth. And that should encourage us because just like the disciples, they were blessed because they were the ones who were with Jesus, seeing what he was doing, hearing what he taught, just as we are as we read through the gospel. They're in a much better position than any of the prophets and righteous people who had come before. So it's an encouragement to them After the opposition from the Pharisees, it's another moment of encouragement for those who are following Jesus. That God makes things grow, that this is how it works, that there is that possibility of a crop 30, 60, or 100 times what was sown. So hopefully that encourages us as well, that growth is possible, makes us aware of the things that can can limit or stop growth from happening. 
And we will go on to explore the other, the other parables, like I say, over the next couple of weeks. And they'll, they'll connect together. So we'll, we'll, this picture that we're building will, will grow. Okay, so I'm going to leave it there.